Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Well, Dr. Scripture, as we continue the series on creation in the book of Job, today we're going to get a little glimpse into part of the creation that we cannot see except when the Bible gives us a peek. That's a great way to describe it, Scott. Today we're going to start reading the narrative which begins the book. And Job will be introduced in the first five verses of chapter one. And then starting in verse six, we're going to see a little bit of what goes on in heaven. And I would use the word fascinating to describe what we read in this passage. Yeah, the idea that God and Satan speak to one another is, well, almost bizarre. You know, I can't think of any other examples like it in the Bible. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God does speak to and curses the serpent, who is, of course, Satan. And in the New Testament, there's actually a conversation between the devil and Jesus as he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. But in both those cases, those events take place on earth. And I can think of one other time on earth that could be considered an exchange between God and Satan. Hmm. The time Jesus was talking to Peter, but then addressed the devil when he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Yeah, excellent. So there are some exchanges between God and Satan recorded in the Bible, but none quite like what we read in Job. So, First, let's read Job 1, verses 1 through 5, and meet the man for whom the book is named. Job 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. So there's a number of things we learn about Job in these introductory verses. Where he lived, that he had 10 children, and he was well off. I'd say that's putting it mildly, giving the description of just his livestock. When it says that he was the greatest of all the people of the East, don't you think that means he was the wealthiest? Well, that probably is what that phrase indicates. But I think it also applies to what God considers to be important too, and that is his character. Yeah, we discussed it in one of the earlier programs in the series. But I'm still impressed with Job's care for his children. To do what he did for them demonstrated a deep love for them, which makes what we're about to see happen to them all the more devastating to Job, a loving, dedicated father. Indeed. And then the scene shifts from Job's earthly dwelling to heaven. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Uh, Dr. Scripture, can we stop right there for a moment? Mm -hmm. One thing that jumps out at me in that verse is the word day used there. It said, now there was a day. 
There are many questions some people have concerning the meaning of the word day in the Bible, and here is a case that's interesting to think about it. Is there day and night in heaven? Does time even pass in the supernatural realm of heaven like it does here on earth? Or should we just understand that the reference to time in heaven is from the earth's perspective? Well, Scott, I'm not sure we can know just how the passage of time works in the supernatural realm. But 2 Peter 3.8 says that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, what that indicates is time in God's mind and experience is very different than in ours, given the perspective we have living on earth. And another thing we should understand is that passage does not change the meaning of the word day such that it can mean any period of time we want it to be. In fact, there in 2 Peter, if the word day doesn't mean a regular earth day, then the verse is virtually meaningless. It would mean that with the Lord, a period of time is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a period of time, which doesn't mean much. Nope. As always, when we interpret the Bible, the context determines the meaning. In 2 Peter, it means a regular earth day. So then, what does it mean here in Job when it says there was a day? Well, one thing I think we can easily understand is from the perspective of time on earth, this event during which God and Satan had this conversation took place on a specific day during Job's lifetime. We don't know how long it was after that conversation, but some number of days later, whether it was one or a hundred and one, Satan then ravaged all that belonged to Job. You could certainly say that day when the sons of God presented themselves to God was a day of destiny for Job. Yes, it was. So now we have this scene in heaven where the sons of God present themselves before God. What do you imagine when you read that, Scott? Well, I see ranks of beings lined up at attention like a military regiment mustering for inspection. But what I have trouble imagining is how many would there have been? When the Bible describes the numbers of angelic beings, it uses terms like heavenly host and myriads of myriads. Yeah. Of course, that's assuming the sons of God there in Job 1.6 are angels. Well, the context makes it clear that they are angels, if for no other reason, because this event is not taking place on earth. We'll see in the next verse, Satan indicates he came from earth in order to be present with the sons of God. And what an interesting description, sons of God. Let's think about that for a minute. As angels, they are beings created by God. And so in one sense, they are his offspring. For example, Paul acknowledges that human beings in general may be described as the offspring of God in Acts 17, 28, and 29. In describing the God the Greeks do not know, he says, quote, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now, here Paul is not talking about the born-again children of God. He's talking about man in general, because we're all created by God. Another example is Adam. As one created by God, Adam is described as the offspring or son of God in Luke's genealogy. 
Read Luke 3.38, Scott. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And these names are at the end of Luke's genealogy, which begins with Jesus and goes backwards in time all the way to Adam, right? Yes, exactly. So as created beings like Adam was, and as the angels are, the Bible refers to them as sons of God. So now, Dr. Scripture, we understand that here in Job, these sons of God are angelic beings. But there's another place where sons of God are mentioned in very ancient times, that being in Genesis chapter 6. Do you think those were angelic beings as well? I think I know your answer. (laughs) Yes, you know my answer, Scott. (laughs) I personally do not think the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 are angelic beings. The verses in Genesis 6 you're referring to are Genesis 6, 1 and 2. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, I admit there are several reasons why it could be understood that those sons of God in Genesis 6-2 are angelic beings. However, just as Adam and his descendants are referred to as offspring or sons of God, I think the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6 are human beings. But that discussion is for another time. If someone is interested in pursuing this question, for now, I'll refer you to the article I've written about it. You can find it on the website scriptureoncreation.org, click the Bible question and answer tab, and on the drop-down menu, you'll find Sons of God in Genesis 6. There I discuss the question. So with that said, let's get back to Job and consider more of what we can learn from this fascinating verse in Job, Job 1.6. You think it would be a good idea to read it again? Yes, Scott, go ahead. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And Scott, when I asked you what you imagined when you read that, you said it made you think of soldiers standing in ranks as though waiting for inspection. Yep. Well, I do too. And the implication is they are all subject to the Lord. Hmm. They report to him, including Satan. He's not some independent agent that can go and do whatever he wants whenever he wants to. And that is supported by several statements in the Bible. One that may not seem so obvious at first is what Jesus says to Peter when he says Peter will deny him three times. Read Luke 22, 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Notice, even though Satan made the demand, he still had to bring his demand to the Lord. He could not unilaterally make a decision and act on it. Nope. Another example is 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says in part, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So thus, God limits what the tempter can do. And that is borne out very clearly in the exchange between Satan and the Lord in the verses we have not even read yet in Job chapter 1. Indeed it is. And it's God's intention to give us these insights that we could never know unless they were revealed to us in his word. 
It's important to remember that Satan can do nothing that God does not allow because God is greater than Satan. He created Satan. Neither Satan nor the fallen angels can do anything that the Lord does not permit them to do. So how amazing is it that frail creatures like us have been given the option to do what we want, at least to a point, without seeking the Lord's permission. But although that does mean we can choose to disobey the Lord's commands and even reject his love, we also can choose to obey and love him in return for all he's done for us. We were introduced to Job in the beginning of the book, and we saw that he chose to fear God and turn from evil. And what we'll learn as we continue our study in this great book, far from the idea that God allowed all the suffering in Job's life because he had done something wrong, it actually was because Job feared God. He was blameless and upright. Ultimately, it was God who brought all the tragedy into his life. But the Lord knew what Job could bear. And through it all, Job had the privilege of demonstrating great endurance and faith, glorifying his creator and becoming an example for all humanity. So as the beginning of Job describes, it says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.